You're listening to the Disney One by One podcast, a chronological look at every Disney animated classic and beyond. Here's your host, Mike Rolfing. Hello and welcome again to Disney One by One. This week, we're talking about The Rescuers Down Under from 1990. It is the 29th movie on the list. And as always, remember, please check us out all over the internet at Disney One X One. And if you can leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, we would love that. And we will read it here on the show. So with us, as always, today is my brother, David Rolfing. David, welcome back to Disney One by One. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me back. This one I have actually seen before, and it's one of the rare ones up to this point. And if I recall, this one's on your top 10 list, at least our original top 10 list. Really? Yeah. Huh. <laughs> have to go back and listen to episode one. <laughs> that was a long time ago. I do not remember that, but yeah. I believe you. Or episode zero. I think you ranked it number 10. So anyway, joining us today, a special guest. This is a special, special guest. Now, I will preface this by saying I was trying to seek out someone from Down Under, legitimately, to join us for <laughs> Rescues Down Under, and I got really close. <laughs> we got someone from Down Under, Down Under. Would you would sure. you say that? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah Jeremy yeah, Vargo, welcome to Disney One by One. Down under adjacent, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> Hi guys, we got a Kiwi on the show, New Zealander. I appreciate uh, Eric Peterson for con- for connecting us. You've heard Eric on a couple episodes, and Jeremy's one of his good friends. So welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, man. I'm very very excited. We're excited to have you and hear about your Disney history. And I will ask, though, is it like offensive to have a New Zealander come on an episode about Australia? Probably to Australians. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, The funny thing is, I always say this to Americans, um, is that essentially uh, Australia is New Zealand's America and New Zealand is Australians Canada. Um, it's the place that Australians know that is kind of nicer and, and just better to be. Um, but you know, it's fine. (laughs) Have you ever, have you been to Australia? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, and the fun, I mean, the, the movie we're talking about, one of the funniest things is just how much distance gets covered, um, between the places they go. And it's like, there's no time at all. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) So tell me a little bit about what you do in New Zealand besides watch movies. Right. So um, I uh, work in communications um, for like a policy and research think tank, and I am married um, and have a little baby on the way. Um, oh, wow. So, Congrats. Yeah, my, my life is um, paradoxically uh, really, really uh, full, and I have less time than ever to watch movies. But after getting the call up to do this episode, I've actually since watched five Disney movies, um, just because I've been so in the mood. <laughs> and I contacted you like two days ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I watched three last night and my wife is just like, what's going on? And I'm like, well, they're all just so short. It's great. Yeah, that's true. What, so what did you watch besides Rescuers and Rescuers Down Under? I watched, um, I got through like five minutes of Rescuers because I was like, this is so bad. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I watched Rescuers Down Under, I watched Cinderella, I watched a bit of Lion King, um, and I watched... Uh, I watched, um, oh, what else did I, oh, Bambi. Oh, yeah. nice. Wow. Yeah, that's what a, a binge. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> this is my binge. <laughs> so, Jeremy, we ask all of our guests on the show about their Disney history specifically. So, I'm curious, first off, like, 
what your Disney experience was like growing up in New Zealand? And did you get movies later than we did in America? Or is it pretty much the same? Yeah, well, I mean, it's actually, it's, you're talking to the right New Zealander because I actually, uh, my parents are both American. My dad's from Michigan. My mom's from California. So oh, I was wow. born in New Zealand, um, but I've been, I, we all of our family holidays, we didn't go on holiday in New Zealand. We basically saved up for three years and then went to America hmm. for about four months at a time. And so... I um, am probably going to get a progressively stronger American accent as I'm talking to you across the show. <laughs> it seems to happen. Um, but yeah, so uh, quite early on, um, my Disney history starts basically when my grandma was on my mum's side was really like did not want us to miss out on like the best of American childhood. And so she would send us the Disney VHS tapes yeah. in the mail like as soon as they came out in the States, which was amazing because actually they wouldn't have even come out in the theater in New Zealand till sometimes a year later. Wow. So they'd come out in the theaters in America, then go to VHS and Walmart. And my, my grandma was a Walmart greeter um, <laughs> and she would get them and, and send them to us for our birthdays or for like, you know, significant dates. And we would have them and all my friends in, in school from, I remember even, you know, I had a birthday party for my fifth birthday party and I had um, the little mermaid. And like, everyone was like, whoa, like they hadn't, <laughs> they hadn't even heard of this movie in New Zealand yet. And, and I'd shown it to them. So it's funny. I don't actually have any memories of going to the theater to watch Disney films because yeah. we got them on VHS before they were even out in theaters. I wonder if that's breaking some law. Oh, I mean, <laughs> this is the thing. If it, you know, in the internet age, it absolutely is. But in the age of physical copies of copyrighted material, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah. And this was pre uh, regions on DVDs. Yeah, yeah, It'd be a little right. harder with the DVD era to. Well, to... no, because it wasn't actually because in uh, for VHS tapes there was um, PAL and there was NTSC. Oh yeah. And so you guys were NTSC and we were PAL. Yeah. Um, format and so we just had, but my dad worked at university um which the university of canterbury and christchurch and he talked to their tech team and he like they got like a super high-tech um hmm. vhs player that could do both yeah that's interesting yeah because because america and i i don't i don't know exactly where pal and ntsc where it's all divided but it's it's like a frame rate difference and a and a format difference mm. and we still i still deal with that in my job now i work for a TV show and we do deliver some international channels and we still have to, we still have to <laughs> play with the different formats, uh, depending on where we're sending it to, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, my, I mean, my, my Disney history started, um, my, you know, I, my, my earliest memories of Disney were all centered around like Bambi, Peter Pan, Cinderella. Um, my grandma would send like the, the back catalog as well as all the new ones. So it's really interesting. I have these sort of all the classics mixed in with, the ones that were being released as I would, as I was a child. So I kind of venerate all of them kind of in a similar place. Did you, uh, on your, on your long trips to the States, did you ever make it to the theme parks? Yeah. Yeah. And I <laughs> really loved how I, you know, just listening to a couple of your previous episodes, I've really loved hearing your complete obsession, um, in a, in a way that <laughs> I could never have gotten away with. We went to, we just, we managed to make it to the California Disneyland once when I was okay. nine years old. And it was, I, I remember being really bummed because it was just as they were building the Indiana Jones ride, oh, um, yeah. in California Disney. And I just was like, Oh, I'm going to come back and you know, and I've never made it back to, to go on the Indiana Jones ride. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. It was great. I have some great memories, very vivid ones. From what Mike has said about the Disney parks on this podcast, you'd think he's been there like a thousand <laughs> times. He has not. He's probably been there. What would you say? Like 15? 
I have. I actually have a document where I've kept track of that. Okay. Uh, just wow. out of out of curiosity. Is fifteen times a good guess? No, I think you're over. Actually, <laughs> um, believe it or not. Hang on, hang on. Let me find this. We didn't go to the Disney parks for many family vacations. It was like a once every ten year thing. So, so uh, here's my list of trips to Disney. <laughs> now that you asked, I'll yeah. pull up my so, document. I believe we went in like 1993. That was like right before you were born, David, with our cousins. We went in 2000 when I was like in eighth grade. My mom took us in some random weekend. And then I took you, David, by ourselves when I was a junior in high school. We went in 2004. I wasn't wow. even old enough. I wasn't even like old enough to technically check into a hotel room. But our yeah, parents we just... had trouble at the concierge. Our parents just sent us and we <laughs> it worked somehow. <laughs> and then, yeah, since then... So yeah, the count is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen-ish. Uh, so, I was close. You're close. So. And yeah, Jeremy, the the Indiana Jones ride is is pretty cool. It's a little it's a little dated. There's a few effects in it that don't work anymore. It needs a little <laughs> refurbishment, but it's still it's oh, still it's pretty so fun. sad. It's so sad that something that I remember looking forward to is now like so dated. <laughs> <laughs> so have you? Did you manage to narrow down this list of over fifty <sighs> movies to your top five? We've had Man. a lot of people cheat, so if you need honorable mentions, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll I mean, allow that. Like I, I've really struggled because I, I think part of part of my struggle is that I there's a sense in which to name a Disney top five can't just be personal likes. There's almost like a kind of thing with for me when I look at this list, I go, well, you know, if I'm going to name my favorite ones, there's probably going to be more from like the '90s, the more recent times. But when you look at what makes Disney great. You've got, you've got to bring in the old ones. Um, so my personal list, um, the ones that like, I sort of, you know, have to go personal would probably be, um, five would be Aladdin, um, four Tangled, three Little Mermaid, two Bambi and one Beauty and the Beast. That's, that's, there's some unique choices on there from, from what we've heard on the show. That's a good list. <laughs> oh, well, unique. Thank you. <laughs> um, but I mean, if, if I'm going to go all time, kind of like I, I sort of jotted down like an all time kind of what makes Disney great. And I don't think you can kind of necessarily label them like sort of five to one, but it's got to include um, like Pinocchio, Cinderella, uh, Beauty and the Beast, Little Mermaid and, and, and I think Lion King. Yeah just because of sort of the place they they occupy in kind of pop culture history and Disney history. I have to ask before we move on, how many people do you know that worked on Lord of the Rings? <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I actually don't know. I don't think I know anyone who worked on Lord of the Rings. <sighs> um, oh, no, no, no. I do know someone now. I've met someone and I'm friends with someone now who was a stunt, who was a stunt person. Um, okay. but no one who like, yeah, no, no, no one that you would recognize, even if you had gone like, as I know that you have right down into the <laughs> you know depths of the special features. What, what species <laughs> did that person play as, as a stuntman? An orc? Pre- yeah, oh, diff- yeah, definitely played an uruk high. Uruk high? Okay. Everything I know about New Zealand, I learned from the Lord of the Rings extended edition special features. <laughs> yeah, and you are sure. exactly the kind of American that we all recognize as soon as they get off the plane. <laughs> oh, is Hobbit in here now? Is it just outside the door? Oh, there's not just short people here. Oh! <laughs> 
you, you, you'll be wearing white yeah. trainers and a fanny pack, right? <laughs> yeah, right. That, that was a good impression. I will say the only thing I can say in a New Zealand accent is Peter Jackson. And it's not P- really even Peter, a New Zealand accent. Peter Jackson. Peter Jackson. Peter Boyens. Peter. Oh, yeah, no. And, and, and Peter Jackson's voice, it would be, and me and Fran, um, <laughs> me and me and Fran and Philippa, we were in the room and we were talking. <laughs> <laughs> it's so it's so sad that those Hobbit movies just were such a disappointment. Yeah, and can I just say that on the Hobbit movies, if you really want someone to like, just if you really want to feel that someone has seen and heard you and knows your heart towards the Hobbit movies, I would say go and listen to the Lindsay Ellis. This she does three YouTube yeah. videos that are about an hour and a half long altogether, and she just unpacks exactly what made them the worst trilogy of all time. Like it's just so gratifying to listen to her just unpack how bad it was. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'll check that out because one of my favorite things ever is the red letter media uh star wars tearing apart star wars yeah oh it's so good (laughs) all right well we've talked enough about random things let's uh (laughs) talk about our movie this week we'll move on to the rescuers down under and now our feature presentation walt disney pictures presents its all-new 29th full-length animated motion picture australia mysterious Untamed. And for a young boy named Cody and his magnificent golden eagle, it was a world of adventure and discovery. Liar! Until... I got her! They met the villain McLeach. Rescuers Down Under, just like The Rescuers, is based on a series of books by Marjorie Sharp. The Rescuers uh, came out in 1977, and you can, of course, listen to that episode... Um, a number of episodes ago featuring my cousin Carol Kane. He cannot return for this episode, but we got Jeremy. Good good backup. Let's say solid backup. <laughs> <laughs> the writing for this movie began about 1986. Rescuers was pretty successful, so they wanted to uh, create a sequel. It was This was the first Disney sequel, believe it or not. They brought on Mike Gabriel and Hendel Butoy to direct this movie. Both those guys had worked on previous Disney films in various animation capacities. Development seemed to go pretty well in this movie compared to some previous ones we've talked through. Uh, the biggest thing is a number of the people in charge wanted to cast an Aboriginal Australian as Cody. So not only get a, a, a native actor voice talent, but also make the character uh, look like a, you know, a native Australian. But they were overridden by sort of the executives at the company. Basically, they wanted a white blonde kid because of the audience they were trying to get this movie in front of, which was kind of a bummer. They decided against the idea of making a musical. You know, most of these movies that we've gone through have been musicals, save for a few. A Rescuers was not, but there were songs in it. There were some songs, the, the, the mice sing the Rescue Aids, Aid Society song, and then there were also some songs in the background during some of the scenes sung by, I forget her name, some uh, pop singer. But they decided they wanted to make a straight-up action-adventure movie, and this was, funny enough, inspired by Mad Max from 1979 and Crocodile Dundee in 1986. There were some very popular... Australian-based action-adventure movies that maybe not directly inspired this, but they were seeing that that stuff was making some decent amount of money, and so that sort of helped spawn this idea as well. And it was the first movie since Bambi to have sort of an animal rights environmental message. Bambi was a long time ago. They've had a lot of movies with animals in them, but none of them have had sort of an obvious message like this one. 
casting in this movie. The voice of Orville, who was the albatross in The Rescuers, Jim Jordan, he passed away uh, soon before the making of this movie. So they decided to create his brother, Wilbur. So that's a direct reference to Wilbur and Orville Wright, the Wright brothers, who were some of the first to, I guess, the first to fly in an airplane. I assumed it was the same character. No, it's not, and it's voiced by a different guy. It's voiced by John Candy, the famous huh. comedian. They did bring back Bob Newhart to play Bernard, Ava Gabor to play uh, Bianca, and a couple other new voice actors. George C. Scott, who's most famous for playing Patton in the Oscar-winning movie Patton, plays Percival McLeach. And side note, George C. Scott was the first person to ever refuse a Best Actor Academy Award. He won it. Um, even though he told him in advance he would not accept it because he didn't believe that dramatic performances should be compared to each other. <laughs> so That's pretty he, cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah, he turned down his Oscar for Patton, which is pretty interesting. He's also in, uh, what's he in, Dr. Strangelove, this, the Stanley Kubrick movie. And then uh, the voice of the eagle, Marahute, and Joanna, the uh, uh, iguana, what animal creature was that? Yeah, uh, the goanna. The Goanna, named Joanna. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> they were both voiced by Frank Welker, who is most known for being the voice of Megatron in Transformers. You know the other thing he voiced in this movie? I don't know. He is the singing voice of McLeach singing, Home, home on the range! <laughs> I guess George didn't want to sing. He doesn't accept Best Actor Awards and he doesn't sing. Right. <laughs> is a goanna the same thing as a monitor lizard? Not, no, I'm pretty sure it's not. It's probably in the same sort of family, but... Okay. They don't have as thick a skin. Are there, are there goannas in New Zealand? No. No. No, there's nothing... Like, Australia is, like, the, the country where everything wants to kill you. Right. And New Zealand is the country where nothing can kill you. We don't have any snakes. We don't have any poisonous spiders. There's, like, no native mammals. Hmm. Yeah, New Zealand's basically just birds and a few cute lizards. And hobbit holes. <laughs> yes, nice. and native hobbits, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's funny. If you listen, if you find an interview with Frank Welker, who did the voice of these animals, he has like a really high-pitched voice, but he also does the voice of Megatron and Transformers, which is really funny. <laughs> so, before they began animation on this movie, a small team of the crew members, including the two directors, actually traveled to Australia to scout it out, to uh, study the animals, study the environments. And this was one of the first times this had ever happened. We, we, we have discussed Saludos Amigos and Three Caballeros, which was like way back in the 30s and 40s, where Disney did take his team to South America, but that was kind of a unique situation. It was not really commonplace for these crews to travel to wherever they were basing these movies and study them, but they, the two directors convinced the producers to allow them to do it. And it kind of became standard after that. I believe a crew went to France in, during the production of, of Beauty and the Beast to scout that out as well. So, and I know crews went to Polynesia, Hawaii to study for Moana. It's kind of become a, a standard practice of Disney and Pixar. And it started with rescuers down under. Um, what else I got? Glenn Keane, who we've talked about on the show. He's a very prominent, famous Disney animator. He was the animator on Marahute, the eagle, which is a very impressive character. And there's some fun videos online of him, like, flapping his arms to, like, study how, how, how eagles <laughs> fly and <laughs> filming himself. Um, this was the first feature film to be given to a crew at Disney MGM Studios. And Disney MGM Studios is, a, is now called Disney Hollywood Studios in Florida. It's a theme park. When it was created, it was actually a functioning studio and a theme park, and a number of scenes from this movie were, were produced there. This was the first Disney animated film to be completely created digitally. 
and not use an actual camera for anything. We've discussed in the past that Disney used the multi-plane camera. They were they they draw different layers and film it with an actual film camera and do f- frames at a time and that sort of thing. And it was a lot of this. Most of this was still hand drawn, but they were able to scan those drawings into a computer in order to then color them and put them together. And we're able to create much more dynamic camera moves and much more detailed layered frames that that multi-plane camera could only do four or five different layers and now they could do dozens and dozens which certainly obvious when you watch this movie and some of the detail that's in it and uh, they use this this system called the caps system which stands for computer animated production system and this was a partnership with pixar one of the early things pixar helped disney with and we all know where pixar and disney relate to each other now this movie was released november 16th 1990 along with a mickey mouse featurette called the prince and the pauper its opening weekend, it grossed $3.5 million. It ranked fourth behind Home Alone, Rocky V, and Child's Play 2. So it had some, some good competition. <laughs> Eventually made $28 million. So that's all I got. David or Jeremy, do you have any fun facts to contribute before we dive into this movie? I did not see as many kind of like interesting facts or Easter eggs or anything for this movie compared to some of the ones we've gone through recently. And I feel like that might be a sign of just like a more successful production process. You know, they didn't have to like cut out scenes and swap actors or change up the story. I really couldn't find anything this time. <laughs> well, I, I ended up finding something out a little bit by accident. Um, I remember when I, I started watching, because this, this movie is one of my like all-time favorites as a kid. Like I would watch this movie over and over and over again. I just flip and loved it. I think I got it. <laughs> I got it on VHS when I was probably like six or seven years old. And I hadn't watched it in years. And I just turned it on. And from the very moment that that credit sequence starts, and it's just like the music is just driving you. <laughs> through the landscape and it's just this like opening you're like whoa and just yeah, the, the music and then it goes through and very quickly you end up in the flight sequence um, mm-hmm. with the eagle and it's just a soaring incredible match of visual and instrumentation like it's just so beautiful and I was like who wrote this music? It feels yeah. like John. It feels like John Williams. And so <laughs> I, I googled John Williams' Rescuers Down Under, and I came to this thing that was just like the nope. com- the composer for this film is Brian Broughton, who was supposed to be doing the music for Home Alone and ended up turning down Home Alone in order to do Rescuers Down Under. Oh, wow. And he was replaced on Home Alone by John, John Williams. Williams. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> which, is cra- which is crazy that then both of those movies got released in the same weekend as well. Yeah, that is pretty wild. Yeah, he also did... I was looking him up too. He did, he did Gunsmoke, I think, and okay. was nominated for an Academy Award for that and then basically didn't do much else. Yeah, I was looking... I mean, he has quite a list of movies he's worked on, but none of them are like super prominent he did he did honey i blew up the kid not not honey i shrunk the kid but honey i blew up the kid he did homeward bound which i watched quite a bit as a kid oh i love that movie so much um what else what are these tombstone that's a western oh that's right sorry not gunsmoke tombstone yeah 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 that's the one he was nominated for that's the crazy thing though about this i mean the the music for this film is so beautiful and so like really like whip crack appropriate for all the scenes yeah and i'm like how did this guy not get more work from this because it is just it's actually stunning So before we dive into rescuers down under jeremy you've talked a little bit about your history with this movie but how many times had you seen it 
did you have many memories of it? What was sort of your preconceived notions before watching it again this week? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely, my preconceived notion of going back to it was that it was sort of like a, a lower tier Disney. You know, like I, I kind of think about Disney, you've got like the, the Disney mythology kind of, you know, the really amazing ones like Cinderella and most of the fairy tales and Lion King, like those ones that sort of make the Disney group of movies as, as incredible as they are. And then you've got sort of the fun adventure ones and then the ones that don't really matter that much and they're just kind of good. And then you've got the crappy <laughs> Disney ones. And I kind of see this one as kind of like one of the, the sort of middle tier of like, yeah, it was fine. Um, but then going back and watching it, I remembered, like it just flashed back to me how much I loved this movie. And I remember the first time I ever watched it, um, we were at uh, a birthday party and I'd just gotten this the, the film and it was stinking hot. Like we were, it was like probably 20, 20 little kids in this room. And um <laughs> And we were all like, it was a sleepover and we had put the movie in and the, one of the first scenes is you've got the main character, Cody, he's sleeping in his bedroom and he's got the fan, like, and it was the first time I'd ever seen a kid with a fan in their room, like to cool them down while they slept. And I was just like, what the heck? That is so unfair. Like, how have I never been offered a fan? Like I just had this like, real sense of injustice as a, like a seven year old kid just being like, why have my parents never provided me with a fan? So that's kind of like the, the, the biggest memory of this is yeah. The, yeah. But I, I think, um, I mean, generally I was, um, I wasn't a kid that really got scared by a lot of things, but I remember being really creeped out by McLeach. Yeah. Um, like it wasn't like a, you know, I was really afraid of him, but I was just like, this guy is bad. Um, and he's really bad and like his, his bad truck and his bad, like lair, like it just was, it all fit really well in a way that other Disney villains didn't quite match up to a lot of the time. He's definitely a great sequel to the, to the villain in rescuers. I know you said you didn't really watch the full movie, mm. <laughs> but, but, the, but the, the, that woman. Oh yeah. I mean, she's insane as well. Like they're, they're a great kind of one, two punch of, of villains yeah. in these movies for sure. Let me out of here. Let me go. You can't do this. Breaker, 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 little mate. mate. I forgot to tell you, around here, you need to be quiet. David, Rescuers Down Under, I'm pretty sure you put this on your top 10 list, if I'm not remembering incorrectly. So what was your history of this movie? I don't know if we owned it. I think we did, or else I just rented it a couple times on VHS from Blockbuster. I definitely remember loving this one as a kid. And I think now watching it again, the reason I did was because it has that just overall adventure feel. And it's different from a lot of the other Disney movies because it doesn't have the musical aspect and the sing-alongs and that sort of thing. So it's more of just a straight-up action movie. And I think that appealed to me as a action, <laughs> violence-obsessed child, I guess. <laughs> um, but I also be remember being kind of terrified of like the concept of being trapped in a cage. You know, and his whole lair is just full of creatures caught in cages with that kid. So I, I remembered glimpses of the movie. I remembered for sure the eagle scene at the beginning, the overall plot and the interactions with the mice and them coming in relatively late in the movie. I didn't really have any recollection of like the overall plot, yeah. just glimpses. Yeah. I don't know if I'd seen this and I say that a lot on the show. <laughs> like I don't think I've seen this. For someone who loves Disney a lot. <laughs> well, that's why we're doing this show. <laughs> I wanted to watch them all. So here we are. I know that the trailer for this movie was on some sort of VHS tape that we watched a lot. It was probably like Little Giants or D2 the Mighty Ducks or, or something, because there were certain moments of this that I'm like, yeah, I've seen this a dozen times, but it's probably because I watched Mighty Ducks five dozen times. 
So yeah, I mean, a few things rang a bell. The McLeach character looked familiar, but again, I think I just saw the trailer a bunch of times. So, well, what's what's interesting with that though is that McLeach, and and this is a, a bigger conversation later on, but McLeach as a villain, even physically, but also in the type of villain that he is, provided a a format or a template um, for a couple of other really not- notable villains, like Governor Ratcliffe from um, Pocahontas. Is his face is super similar. Um, and just the whole environment and the interplay between McLeach and an animal um, like uh, Joanna the Goanna and their personalities <laughs> is very similar to the way that Jafar and Iago relate to one another. Yeah. Um, and there's just all these templates. And it's funny watching this this movie that was at the beginning or near the beginning of the Renaissance um, in the 90s and seeing how much of the iconic visuals and some of the sort of character beats um, – almost map directly back to a lot that of that goes on within this movie yeah that's very interesting i mean they certainly borrow from themselves over and over and over again mm. and we especially have seen that watching these all in order and and obviously i mean the plot of this movie is very similar to the plot of rescuers mm. but they just put a little twist on it and it makes it fresh again that's kind of what all disney does actually yeah <laughs> For the it's most so much so much better than the rescuers the first <laughs> one and that's it's that's a rare thing with a sequel usually sequels are as good or a little bit worse than the originals and this one was clearly much better than the rescuers well and it was 13 years in the future and i believe we talked on the rescuers episode about how there were a number of a number of the the guys that kind of were the guys in the renaissance that we keep mentioning began their sort of early disney careers with around the time of the original these are the guys that really yeah. change Disney for the better. And so that's probably why this movie just is considerably better looking and feeling and, and sounding and than, than the original. Mm. But, and, and it's just, it is just so cool seeing almost these people who are going to go on to create like the, um, the flying carpet scene in the clouds in Aladdin do that with the Eagle in the clouds in this movie. Um, and then they're going to go on and create the iconic like uh, Pride Rock and Lion King, and yeah. you see basically see Pride Rock like the the tilted um, tilted rocks in the Crocodile Falls, and also above McLeach's lair. Like mm-hmm. it's just the visuals are just you're like whoa. They're like they're trying it out to use later. <laughs> <laughs> Now that you've watched it, though, Jeremy, what was your sort of initial reaction upon watching this movie for the first time in a while? It it grabbed me from the very first moment, like, and it just didn't let me go. Like the opening sequence from the, I mean, you know, you you watch like classic Disney where they have all the, you know, they do they do the thing where they've got all the credits before the movie, and this manages to do that in a way that just plunges you deep into the into this context of, especially for a lot of American kids watching a, a, a movie that takes place in a different country, different landscape. You know, you you're drawn like literally drawn into this landscape. Um, with incredibly exciting music um you're in a different world um it's amazing um and then immediately this kid just like has a call to action he needs to do something you figure out that this kid is confident he's basically alone um that's the one thing as well is that like you just get all these pieces of information so quickly and it's so efficient that the way that it just plunges you into the story they move you through to the eagle and the the huge sequence of flying and you know going off of that waterfall which again is you know you see that in pocahontas almost exactly that same scene um later on (laughs) 
and and it's just incredible and i, I just sat there and i was like this is a freaking awesome movie like what why was i sleeping on this for so long <laughs> that's great david how about you yeah similar similar feelings i think right from the beginning the bugs crawling around and it being peaceful and then just blasting you into the field with the opening shot and the opening credits with the the cool music pounding it's just like it puts you in the adventurous mood right off the bat um i really liked how they focused on the boy more in this movie in the rescuers a girl gets kidnapped and you really don't know much about her you don't really relate to her or care about her but the kid that gets kidnapped in this movie like you're with him for longer you get to know him more so you care about him more yeah i mean i will echo you guys on that opening shot it uh was a great kind of nod to Bambi. We were talking about how how this is the first movie since Bambi to kind of have this conservation uh, message to it. And Bambi starts with a, with a very long mm. shot kind of pushing through the trees and you end up on Bambi and his mom. But this just kind of like kicked that up a notch. <laughs> like we're going to show off what this cap system can do. Yeah. We're not doing multi-plane <laughs> cameras anymore. We're going to do a nice rack focus from a bug and fly across a field of flowers and it's going to be the coolest thing we've ever done. I thought this opening sequence was a dream <laughs> at first because, <laughs> like, it's certainly not very realistic to have this boy uh, uh, communicating with these animals and then flying away on this giant eagle in epic form. But it was certainly epic and, a, and an incredible way to start this movie. Well, it's just the most irresponsible parenting you've ever seen in your life. Like, what <laughs> that cliff he climbs up at the beginning. I mean, like, first of all, obviously, just the inspiration for Mission Impossible Three. Um, <laughs> and like, and the entire life of Alex Honnold. Yeah, yeah. But just like this, like what? Like you, you say that maybe like eight year old kid free climbing this enormous cliff in like two minutes. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, like you say, the logic behind which animals get to talk in this movie and which animals don't. <laughs> it's just, and also what accents they have. Like why yeah, is right. one one animal native to Australia got an Australian accent and one why does one that's native have an American accent? Who knows? Right. And why is the boy have an American accent, though his Ex mom has an Australian accent? Except for the when he says, yeah, I've got it in my park. <laughs> at the beginning he tries to say pack and it's like this one concession is like one of his first lines um this one concession to this idea that this kid's from australia he says yeah put it in my pluck <laughs> it's, like, it's the worst attempt at an australian vowel i've ever heard. <laughs> yeah mom what about your breakfast i've got some sandwiches in my pack no worries mom they would never do that today. I mean, the entire cast of Moana was people of of, yeah. of Polynesian descent. Yeah. But I mean, you look at like Aladdin, the animated Aladdin, they just a bunch of Americans. I think it was also this idea that, um, you know, this the sense that the people who who gave voice to these things didn't matter. It was the voice. It wasn't the person. And and really, it was only I mean, John Candy's casting in this was actually, again, a template for a, a major actor that people would recognize and actually value the person's voice because of the rest of their career. Right. Which they hadn't done a lot of. Yeah. And again, that was I mean, you look at the place that Wilbur takes in this movie um, and it's so similar to the place that the genie takes in Aladdin. Um, you know, even right down to the fact that there's almost like a kind of semi post credit sequence at the end that, that is essentially one last humor beat from Wilbur in a yeah. way that is the same thing with the genie at the end of Aladdin pushing up the film strip, you know? Right. Okay, that's it. I'm out of here. This is ridiculous. You can't leave me here alone. <laughs> I'm gone. I am gone. 
Oh, no. Stay in those eggs. That's a direct order. One of the things I really liked was how we got some new and different animals. We've had a lot of these Disney movies with animals. I think most of them have animal characters. And it was fun to see. more mice. (laughs) Yeah, most of them are mice. For sure. I, I think I loved the, the whole band of animals in, in the in the cage room. We had a kangaroo. I don't even know what they all were. Kangaroos and lizards and koalas. Echidna. Um, what was that? An echidna? It, one of them is an echidna. I, I loved that little sequence. The, this, even though all of their efforts were kind of in vain to, to, to grab the keys off the wall. Yeah. But that sense of that sense of camaraderie that like yes. and this is one of the things that, you know, in the movie they made they were very intentional. The only adult that got a face was McLeach. Um, there are heaps of other adults that have that sort of cow and chicken, you know, they're just a set of legs or they're just arms and legs. Um, and so really it's to visually emphasize that this really is just a small boy who's having to work with the environment to beat evil. And he has no recourse to any adult authority or any adult help. Yeah. And no, I'll say about McLeach, I think most of the shots of him were kind of from below, like filming mm. up at him. So you're, you are getting that kid and or mouse perspective on him Mm. sort of this just overbearing presence and the other thing that really got me about that sort of the movie like storytelling from a kid's perspective is just how much this movie gets what makes kids excited like i remember one of the biggest things that stood out to me when i was a kid that i just loved is that almost like rube goldberg tactile machine energy that the message for help gets across the world in all these different ways (laughs) and then it continues through like the little rube goldberg machine where like the pea soup gets made like kids just love it and it's it's awesome Oh yeah, that sequence was great, and it, it reminds me of the the lighting the beacons in uh, Return of the King, yeah. right? <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> Bringing it back around to New yeah. Zealand. Yeah, yeah, and we even got some of. Uh, I've talked in past episodes how much I love uh, Disney Disney maps, <laughs> aerial aerial shots of of countries. Mm. They always do them very interestingly. There's a bunch in in Dumbo and in Saludos Amigos and Three Caballeros, and we got a mm. little bit of that here. I'm sure that was kind of a nod to some of those older Disney films and Indiana Jones. And which, Indiana you know, Jones. this movie yeah. comes directly, you know, in the wake of Indiana Jones and how, like, you know, the travel across the world and those oh, yeah, style exactly. of maps. Yeah. yeah, that is certainly what they were referencing. I was just rewatching the arrows flying across the world. It looks exactly the same as Indiana Jones style. Yeah. I think they copied them. And uh, one of the cities that the arrow lands in is St. Louis. <laughs> <laughs> and Denver. <laughs> is there, does it do Denver too? Yeah. Oh, nice. All right. So that takes us into the mouse world which we've if you've seen the rescuers you've seen a lot of that you've seen them at the united nations before and everything like that one of the scenes that i did remember clearly from watching it as a kid was their dinner and that chandelier yeah and him Hmm. messing messing up his proposal basically throughout the movie which continues on as a theme which is funny but they introduced those characters fairly late like 15 minutes in i think and then they don't actually get to australia until 30 minutes into the movie wow so it's kind of interesting the pacing it kind of emphasizes that the boy cody is the protagonist not these mice like Mm. they were in the last movie because they didn't get involved until half of the movie was finished yeah they also didn't really need to set them up 
as much in this one because we have an entire previous movie to establish that stuff. So there wasn't as much of an explanation of what was going on because I'm sure they expected people to have seen to have seen the original. It was actually really funny them being in the kind of the mice UN, um, just looking at the different like which countries had been sat next to which countries, yeah. um, and, and also the fact that there was a <laughs> my favorite things was that the the, um, the representative from Morocco was a guy named Frank. Um, <laughs> it's like really <laughs> Mouse maybe from that's Morocco. short for something maybe that's yeah. short for something and then it's when I was watching the original Rescuers um, the nameplates on the desks oh, you may have picked this up in the original when you were talking about it but the nameplates on the desk had um, representatives from countries as well known as Africa and <laughs> Vienna <laughs> what? really? <laughs> yep so there's there's a nameplate for Africa and next to a nameplate from Vienna it's so yeah. funny man nice yeah well maybe they're just trying to see if you caught it yeah yeah i'm looking at the the name cards they're all countries on this one so they corrected that yeah i was just gonna add this one definitely stood out to me animation wise as like it looks like a modern movie the level of animation could pass as like a you know a new movie maybe 10 years ago you know it's like it looks so good there are so many shots like when he's trying to propose again before that snake shows up, there's like reflections in the water that look amazing. Um, there's a lot of really cool, just like perspective shots, especially when he's flying around on the eagle, just to make it seem more vast and expansive that just look way better than these past movies we've been watching. So I definitely appreciated the quality of the animation as well. And uh, McLeach's Mad Max vehicle is pretty sweet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> I was not expecting him to try to feed that kid to the crocodiles. That was brutal. Yeah, sure. It's like, and this is, I guess, it's interesting because going back and watching this, I'm just like, wow, there's a lot of moments in this movie that would not pass muster today. And it's that classic, like, you know, people our generation are just like, oh man, you know, when it was back, we didn't even care about that sort of stuff back in the day. But like, you know, like you just said, you know, him trying to feed him to the crocodiles and like shooting a gun at the child, like just above (laughs) him, like to to you know get rid of the rope. Um, you know, and also like all the body horror with wilbur like you know with all the medical you know the, the yeah. medical the, like it's actually really like nurse ratchet kind of levels of yes you know like mice are brutal yeah. <laughs> and I, I mean i remember as a kid absolutely loving it and just thinking it was the funniest thing ever um but again just all stuff that i just do not think they would do now yeah, this movie was rated G when it came out, and, and well, I don't know, I, I don't know how you guys do ratings in New Zealand, but G is like the yeah. whole, you know, oh, yeah, for yeah. all audiences, and yeah. uh, it would at least be PG today. Yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, even just for you know, like when McLeach is um, singing the Home on the Range thing, you know, and it's just yeah. like where the critters and tied up in chains, I cut through their sides and I rip, and up rip their off hides. their hides. <laughs> <laughs> like I had never heard the original Home on the Range song, so like I literally would sing that song and like. <laughs> And people who adults who hadn't seen the rescuers down under would be like, "This kid is so screwed up in the head, man." <laughs> yeah, that is. Yeah, that is pretty messed up. Yeah, I mean, because the, the the original lyrics are like, "Where the deer and the antelope play." Yeah. <laughs> oh, home on the range, where the critters are tied up in chains. I cut through their sides and I rip up their hides, and the next day I do it again. Everybody, oh, home on. Well, and also the hero of the whole piece, Bernard, at the end, he actually murders McLeach. Like he he pushes him into a crocodile-infested like thing, and 
he knows that the whole point of pushing him in there is to kill him. Like, <laughs> just but saying. he he doesn't die. He falls off the waterfall, though. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the intent yeah, the intent behind what Bernard is doing is to essentially kill him. He knows what's going to happen. Like, it's yeah. I, I was like, oh, that's interesting. Are you sure he doesn't like trip? No, no, no. It, it, he pushes, he pushes it because he, he's he's teetering on the edge, and Bernard yeah. goes and pushes his shoe. I'm watching it. Oh yeah, he sure does. <laughs> just fold it up <laughs> with one little finger. He yeah, 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 yeah. And then he brushes his hands off. <laughs> yeah. And what man, I have to say, the the that climax, this climax of the film, I really like I mentioned at the beginning how tight the writing and the plotting of this film is. And I really like we've talked about how, you know, Cody's really the protagonist of this film. But what's amazing about the ending of this film is it all comes together is that the plot of Cody and McLeach and the and the Golden Eagle and the plot of Bernard and Bianca and this sort of, you know, triangle that's going on with Jake and yeah. our, our sense of, you know, feeling sorry for Bernard that he's sort of this put upon guy who's, you know, generally a pretty good guy, but he's a bit of a wuss. Um, all of those story threads actually come in and join up perfectly in one moment and one mm. action of Bernard basically being like, all of this is up to me and I've got to chase this thing. And it's him proving himself. It's him saving Cody and the Eagle. Like, and it, I was just like, man, this is such good writing. Like, it's just <laughs> really great how like all the emotions and all the emotional threads of this film have just come together. So, Jeremy, the job of our guests on this show is to come up with a specific rating system for the specific movie. So, we need <laughs> we need our rating system for Rescuers Down Under. Uh, we're rating it out of three eagle eggs. Okay, just three? Well, yeah, because there's only okay. three. Well, yeah, I mean, okay, sorry, three eagle eggs and three eagle stones. <laughs> okay, so out of six total. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right, so well, why don't you go ahead and start? Out of out of six eagle eggs and eagle stones, how would you rate the rescuers down under, Jeremy? I mean, honestly, I'd give it a five out of six. There is like very little to complain about with this movie. It is it is very tight. Great, David. How about you and your closing thoughts? Out of six eggs, including three stone <laughs> eggs, I'd give it a four point eight eggs. As far as like comparing it to other Disney movies, it, it is just a little bit different without those memorable songs, you yeah. know? And I think that's one of the reasons I maybe didn't remember it as well from when I watched it as a kid. But it is a very solidly written, funny characters, lots of characters that you care about. I, I liked it a lot. I was surprised. Even though I had it in my top 10, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> this is only second movie up to now that didn't have music in it, besides McLeach singing Home on the Range. Uh, the only other one to not have music was Black Cauldron that we've been through so far. So I think out of six, yeah, I really liked this. I'm going to, I'll go, I'll go five. Mm. One five out of six. This is definitely one that I will I will revisit. I, I really enjoyed it. And even just kind of fast forwarding through as we're, as we're talking, pulling up little scenes here. There's a lot I really enjoyed, and I think the characters were solid, um, other than that I th they thought they all should have had Australian accents. <laughs> and I love the band of animals, and I, and I love this, just this conceit. We talked about this in the Rescuers episode. I love this whole idea of the mice being in this parallel world of the humans. Yeah. And they like sort of know they're there, but they sort of don't. And just diving into that more, I, I really enjoyed. So I'd say five out of six. This may, this may eke its way into my top ten once we get through all this. We'll Whoa. see. So with that, we will end this show. 
Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us today. And you have a podcast of your own. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so I, I um, am with a group of guys called Cult Popsha in New Zealand. Um, they're basically, they um, two of the guys do a regular um, show called Film Franchise Fortnights, where they watch an entire film franchise in a fortnight. Um, and then we also <laughs> delve into the weird world of um, Cult Popsha, um, well, pop culture. Yeah, so I guess you can check me out on there and uh, hopefully enjoy. And that's called Cult Popsha? Yeah, that's right. on the places where all good podcasts are found all right and david thank you again for joining me on this journey he's got to find a movie thank you mike i had a quote (laughs) i didn't make it all the way through third grade for nothing (laughs) all right yeah i'll use that yeah we'll use that one um and remember please uh, check us out everywhere on the internet at disney 1x1 and please leave us a rating and review on apple Podcasts um because it really helps us out with that, uh, we'll end the show next week. As we said, we have Beauty and the Beast, a classic, a classic of all classics. And we'll see you then. Goodbye. Bye-bye. You say goodbye, Jim. Oh, goodbye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Disney One by One podcast. If you have any questions or suggestions, send us an email to Disney1x1 at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Disney1x1 and at Disney1x1.com. We'll be back next week with another exciting episode of the Disney One by One podcast. How are you guys connected? How do you know each other? We just met. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't oh, we've, been, sure. we've been friends for so long, right. like four minutes now.